Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 9, and we're going to read the whole chapter this morning. So starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had um, seen seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this is not a man from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees now, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Verse 24. For the second time they said, They called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind and now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why is this an amazing thing? 
why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do nothing. Then they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, Have you seen him? And you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. And this is the word of the Lord. Looking for a mic stand. <laughs> hey guys, we're so glad that you're here. And um, as she was reading uh, John 9, I was just thinking, this is a good one. You know, I was just thinking about this chapter and how good it is and super excited about it. Um, there's so much here. You can see it's a very long passage. Um, let's pray and uh, ask God to come and meet with us. Father, um, this life is painful, Lord. Um, not always, but often. And uh, Lord, as we just think about suffering, we think it's just always right around the corner if we're not already in it. And Lord, also though, life is short. And um, as we come before you, Lord, we just pray that you would instill in us a great hope for the glories to come, the world to come. We're going to make all things new. Give us resurrected bodies. We live on a resurrected world, enjoying your presence, Lord. Lord, open our eyes today to believe in that future that we have with you. And I just pray, Lord, for those who are here who don't yet know you, haven't yet had their eyes open to the beauty and the value of Christ so that they would want to become his disciples. Lord, I pray that you do that work. Um, only you can open the eyes of the physically blind or the spiritually blind. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do it this morning. We're so thankful for an opportunity to gather together as your people. We pray that you would exalt your son in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in, um, in John 9, and we're in verses 1 to 2. We'll start there. Um, this is the, the account of when Jesus healed a man that was born blind. But it starts with a question about suffering. You can see that in verse 1 and why suffering happens. He says in verse 1, um, As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Um, this is a great time to talk a little bit about the, the purpose of suffering, the reason for suffering, clear up some misconceptions. There'll also be a good opportunity in John 11 in a couple of weeks, so I'm really looking forward to that. But here his disciples ask a question that really reflects the culture's view at that time on suffering. And the idea was this, that, a, that suffering was a direct result of an individual's sin. And so if you were suffering in some way with a disability like this man or disease or some issue came upon you, it's your own fault, okay? It's a one-to-one -one thing. It's, it's punishment for sin. And Jesus tells him real clearly that that's not the case. 
In fact, it's a great case study for this because this man was born blind, okay? Like, how would he have caused this by his sin? You know, this is a perfect case. It'd be a little silly to even blame this guy, and that's probably why they, you know, blame his parents. Makes sense. Um, and um, as we look at this, we got to realize that this view of kind of blaming the sufferer for their suffering is, is common even today. There are religious forms of it. If we think about Hinduism or Buddhism, you have this whole idea of karma. The idea behind karma is that when you do bad things, there's an account built up on that of the bad things that you do. And the suffering that you have in this life is a direct result of that. And it may be a result of things you've done wrong in this life, or it may be a result of things you've done wrong in a past life, but your suffering is your fault. This is something you've brought on yourself. Um, and that's common in various religions. And, and guys, that view of suffering is both simplistic, maybe that's why we like it, it's so simple, and it's also incredibly cruel. If you look at the, the book of Job, you can see that Job's friends thought that way, right? They come there to, quote, comfort him, and they do good for a little while, silent. They sit there next to him. That was the best they ever did. And then when they started opening their mouths, they start blaming Job for all of his problems. And you can just see how this view of suffering, this false view of suffering, compounds a person's suffering. Not only do they have the suffering of the disability or the disease or whatever thing came their way, but it's compounded with the fact that they feel guilty that they brought this upon themselves. And there's a secular version of this too. If we think of like Hoover's rugged individualism, you know, there's this idea that you would look at the poor, you look at the disadvantage, and you would assume this is their fault. Because if, if they were stronger, if they were, you know, better people, they'd pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they wouldn't be in the situation they're in. And, um, and that's a common view in, in our time. Um, but, you know, that ignores the fact, guys, that many of the reasons why those in this room that have some success have it is mainly due to factors beyond their control. It's mainly the gifts of God, it's the grace of God. It isn't that, that you know, they're better or something like that. And this kind of, kind of blaming sufferers for their suffering creeps into the church too. Very commonly creeps into the church. It comes in through the health wealth gospel. I put quotes around that because it's not a gospel. Or the prosperity gospel. The idea behind the prosperity gospel, which is very common in our valley, is that God wants all his people to be healthy and wealthy. And if you do the right things, you'll have that kind of prosperity. It's a very simplistic view. But you can imagine how cruel that view is when someone's suffering. You know, it's your fault. It's your problem. Why don't you think more positively? Why don't you be more diligent? And things like that. The assumption behind the prosperity gospel is, is, is that if you do all the right things, God owes you a happy life. And if you're not having your best life now, that's because you aren't doing the right things to get it. The truth, guys, is, is that we're all sinners, Right? We are all sinners. We deserve nothing from God but punishment. But the gospel is, is that Jesus in Christ took the punishment that we deserved on himself. And now all the things that we get from God are gifts. They're grace. We don't earn favors from him and, and you know, I scratch God's back, he scratches mine. That's not the way it works. It's all grace. And so, guys, in most cases, and I say most because there are a few exceptions, in most cases our suffering is not due to as a direct result of our sin, but it's a due to humanity's sin in general. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to Genesis 1 through 3, and I'd really recommend you do that um, this evening, you can look through and see that God created the world perfectly without suffering, and he put human beings over the creation to rule it under him. So human beings were made with this great, great calling, which is God owns everything. He puts human beings in charge to rule over the creation, um, and that we were to live in happy submission, trusting him. 
But we didn't want that, right, as a humanity. We wanted to be our own gods. We wanted to decide right and wrong for ourselves. Does it sound familiar? Still do it, right? And in that rebellion against God, what happened is we allowed sin and sickness and disability and suffering and death to enter the world. You guys are familiar with uh, Pandora's box? It's the, the Greek... Uh, the Greek story, it's an ancient Greek story about Pandora's box. So Zeus gives Pandora this box, it's actually a jar, for, as a wedding gift, and it's really to um, punish her. And tells her, like, here's this beautiful thing, don't open it, okay? <laughs> and so I don't know how long, but eventually she opens it, and what happens? Outpours disease and suffering, and all the problems of the world come out of this box. It's a similar story, right? Um, it, we have stories in our own culture about this too, don't we? What movies do we have? that are movies about things that we've unleashed in the world that we can't quite gain control of again? Alien. Alien. What else? That's a good one. What? What? Jumanji? Godzilla, right? The Mummy, right? The Matrix? Uh, all those killer virus movies? Right? Jurassic Park? I mean, these are, we have these stories because deep down inside, we know we've done that. You guys realize that? We write stories like that because we know deep down inside as a humanity that we have let something into this world that we can't shove back in the box. It's called the curse. And it's wreaking havoc on both God's beautiful creation and on ourselves. And we can't quite shove it back in the box. And guys... You know, so that's why we sin. I mean, sorry, that's why we suffer. That's why we have disease. That's why we have these things. But let me ask you this. If it isn't a direct result of our own sin, is it random? I think that's part of the attraction that people have to this idea that, you know, if I'm suffering, it's due to some sin I did. What did I do wrong? Is it, We want to make connections. We want to figure things out. We want to gain control of the situation. So if these things are just coming upon us because of um, humanity's sin in general, is it random? You know, when it hits us, not if, but when it hits us, is it random? Is it meaningless? Is it senseless? And this passage would say no. If you look at verse 3, Jesus just doesn't just say that it wasn't him or his parents' sin. He says something else. He says, you see, but that, or so that. Our sufferings always have a purpose, even if we don't at the time know what they are. Because God, guys, God does not want to see us suffer. In Lamentations 3, it says, he does not afflict us from the heart. He does not want to cause grief to the children of men. Whenever he allows these things to happen, he always has a good purpose in it. The, one of my friends said this to me, and it stuck out so well, I just remember him saying it. He said, Eric, he goes, God is more than willing to spare us any unnecessary suffering. And that's so true. Anytime it comes upon us, it's necessary. He has a purpose. Remember, this guy was born blind. He had tremendous suffering. It says later in the passage, isn't this the one who was begging? He was reduced to poverty all of his life because of this. Why? Look at verse 3. That the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Why is that important? Guys, the reason why that's important is because our world is headed for something far worse than physical suffering, far worse than sickness, disability, the blindness of this man, or even physical death. Because of our rebellion against God, we deserve everlasting punishment. And that's what the curse is for. It's a big sign. When we see the way the world is, it's this big sign that points to the fact that we are not right with God. You know, It's a huge pointer to that. 
And Christ is the only solution to that, right? He's paid the penalty for our sin. He's suffered on the cross so that he can end all suffering. That's the solution, but the problem is, is that we're blind to it. You look at humanity, Christ is the one solution, and most of the world is completely blind to it. Most of the world is, is not in a room like this, thinking about Jesus, because they're blind to he's the solution. But what if, guys, what if God could so work in my suffering and in yours to somehow cast a light on Christ so that people could come to see the beauty and power of Jesus and be saved by him? That's what's going to happen in this guy's life. You think, why did this guy suffer so much throughout his life? He suffered for this moment when Christ would be put on display. And so um, it, it, it's cool because you think of his neighborhood, and it's, think of his neighborhood as this dark place where no one knows Jesus. They're completely in darkness. They're blind. And what's about to happen in this guy's life is going to be like this huge flash of light. They won't be able to ignore Jesus, right? They're not going to be able to ignore Jesus here in a moment. All of them, for a while, are going to see his glory. They're going to talk about it for years. And so it's worth it in his life for this to happen. You look at verse 3. He says that it's happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And guys, that's what God's going to do in our suffering. You know, um, It's going to be worth it. Please believe me. Please believe God that your suffering is going to be worth it. I, I was thinking about it this week. And just imagine in the world to come, when we're in our resurrected bodies on a resurrected world, that we get to think about and remember how Christ was displayed in our pain and suffering. And how people actually came to Christ because they saw Christ's life in us through our pain and suffering. Guys, that's going to be worth it. Imagine a whole eternity of seeing the fruit of people who have come to Christ through your suffering. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. And, and I was just thinking about this because it's so important that we think about this, guys, because our culture is so addicted to comfort, aren't we? We are addicted to comfort. We are so averse to suffering. We, we think that it, you know, when we start following Jesus, if it in any way causes suffering or loss or pain, that we're doing it wrong, right? Don't you ever think that? You're like, I must be doing this wrong because it's costing me something. That's a cultural mindset. That's, that's not a biblical mindset. And our mission, guys, is in, it's in Matthew 28. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Guys, that's going to require suffering. There's no way to do the mission of Christ without suffering. And whether that's you go, and a lot of the places that are, have unreached peoples that have no access to the gospel, a lot of those places are places you will have a difficult time giving a second sermon. You realize that? They're the places that are hardest and the most difficult. We have to be a people willing to take some suffering. And even if we're going to be here and make disciples here, that's going to require suffering, right? Um, think about this week, guys, or think about your life, and just think about when was the last time that the Great Commission cost you suffering? That you went, this is painful. <laughs> you know, doing this mission Jesus gave me is painful. And, and hopefully that time was, you know, recently. And perhaps it was financial, or it was time, or it was your reputation, or it was leisure. Guys, the world is going to come to see Christ's value through our suffering. That's the way it works. And I just think, guys, in the world to come, we're going to be amazed at the return on investment, aren't we? I mean, we're going to, in the world to come, when we think about, like, you know, you had offered some food to somebody, or you had spent some time discipling somebody, or you had, you know, endured some difficulties at work being very clear that you're a Christian, and then you find out, because a lot of times we don't find out in this life the fruit of the things that we've done, and we see it, I just think we're going to wish we'd signed up for more. 
you know, because the time of investment has ended, you know, and there's no, there's no chance at that point to, to suffer for Christ, to, to put ourselves out for Christ at that time. The time of opportunity will be gone, and we're just going to be like, man, can't believe what God did through that little word I said. You know, it was awkward. <laughs> I thought it went horribly, and then look, you're here, you know. So um, that's what's going on in his suffering. It's going to be this big flash of glory in this neighborhood so that all the people around this blind man can see who Jesus is. But it starts in a really weird way. Look at verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, and he made mud with his saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He went back, washed, and came back seeing. This is strange, okay? You have a blind man... Jesus is like, I got this. He starts spitting on the ground. He makes mud. He shoves it in the guy's eye. Like, this doesn't look like it's going to help, okay? And I think we can all relate that know Jesus well, that in our lives, we've prayed for things. We've hoped he'd fix something. And then he did something like that. And you thought, this is not helping. But it was, okay? Um, it's a beautiful thing, guys. This actually... This miracle is actually not a work of restoration where he's taking something that was broken and making it work again like you might with a car. This is an act of recreation, okay? We have a slide here of a, a human eye here. Guys, the eye is a completely amazing thing. It's a thing of immense beauty. It's Valentine's Day, so you might look into someone's eyes and tell them how beautiful they are. <laughs> but this is a macro view of a human eye. And you think, is it normal? That's normal. If you look really closely at an iris, the inside of the eye, it actually isn't smooth. It's actually bumpy and stuff like that. And, and the eye is an amazing thing. It's beautiful, but it's also an amazing machine. Have you guys ever just sat back and thought about it? I mean, as the light, okay, so you're seeing things, but you're not seeing the thing. You're seeing the light reflecting off the thing, right? So light bounces off something. It comes in through your cornea, that outer surface of your eye. That's your cornea. Goes through the anterior chamber where there's some fluid. Next thing it goes is to the lens. The lens is actually inside your eye. And that lens is hooked to little muscles. And the muscles can make the, the lens flatten out or get bulgy to focus the light. And that happens all automatically, which is amazing. Goes through the lens. Goes through the vitreous in the back, some more fluid. Then hits the retina. In the back of your eye is the retina. That's the part that looks black, but it's not. If you shine a light in there, it's kind of red. And there's all these little rods and cones, all these little receptors that pick up that light. And then they transmit that into little electrical impulses. So the picture, the light, becomes little electrical impulses. They go through nerves. There's an optic nerve right behind your eyeball. Goes back, crosses inside your brain, goes to opposite sides of the back of your head. You just realize you see with the back of your head, the occipital area of your head. And then your, the back of your head receives all these like, doo -doo 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 -doo, like Morse code and goes, can make a picture out of it that's accurate, that you could like drive and not run into stuff. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing. So it's things like, it's beautiful to look at. It's this amazing machinery. And yet it's entirely ignored. You know, who gives any thought to it until you see a gigantic eyeball like that? And then you're like, you have to. Until it fails, right? That's when we notice it, is when it fails. Guys, this is an act of recreation, not restoration, because his eyes never worked. He was born blind. Um, and, and it's really cool the way Jesus does this, is he's doing an act of recreation, and so what does he do? He does this with mud. It's probably kind of a wink-wink to Genesis 2, when God made human beings out of the dust of the earth. He's probably saying, watch me create, you know? Watch me be the creator, 
And so he fixes this eye. It's also an amazing picture of the gospel, isn't it? He's taking dirt and saliva, which is by definition unclean, right? And he says, go and wash and you'll see. It's this picture of how we're unclean and we need the cleansing that Christ gives. But let's not like, get so caught up in the symbolism that we miss the miracle and rejoice with this man. Because this is amazing. He's never seen before. It's not like he had seen before and he's getting his sight back. He has never seen before. Imagine what that'd be like. Imagine. Now, he would have, his world would have been arm's length, right? Anything he could touch, anything he could feel, and of course things he could see. But he made pictures in his mind out of things he would feel. But he's seeing for the very first time colors. Never seen colors before. Never seen like the fine textures. He's never seen things beyond his arm length. So he's never seen the sky. He, he can't feel it. He's never seen the sun. He's never even seen mountains. He's, he's only had foreground, and it was just what he could feel. And he's seeing for the very first time. It's amazing. It's totally amazing. And his neighbors react to this healing in a really funny way. Look at verse 8. The neighbors, when he starts you know, seeing, they're like, one of them says, it's him, isn't it? And then another one says, yeah, it's him. And then another one says, no, 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 it's not him, it looks like him. Which is a great theory, right? It's like, so the blind man was taken away and replaced with a double, you know? But guys, this is just like the way we react to healings, isn't it? When we've had people healed in our midst, it's like, they get healed of something and we're like, well, did you take a new medication? Or, you know, we're looking for some natural cause because guys we're wired against supernatural causes we're not quick to go oh that was a miracle you know we're quick to go that was something else or maybe this is a different guy you know um and 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 they were that way too because I think sometimes we think about the first century people and somehow they were like everything's a miracle everything's a demon everything's God no they're like this is a different guy this doesn't happen okay they react the same way we do um, and then he says, he goes, it's me, right? And they go, well, then where is this Jesus? And he goes, how should I know? I was blind. <laughs> you know? And it's also crazy for this neighborhood. They're going crazy over it. So what do they do? They go, we need an expert. Okay? So they go to the local experts, the Pharisees. And they're thinking, the Pharisees are going to be excited. This is amazing. They're not stoked. Okay? The Pharisees are not stoked. Why are they not stoked? It was done on the Sabbath. Wrong day. Sorry, we should be closed this day, right? And, and the issue with the, the Sabbath is not breaking the Old Testament law. It's breaking their oral tradition, okay? The Old Testament law did not say that you cannot give sight to people that were born blind on, Sunday, on, the, on the Sabbath, on Saturday. Did not say that. Didn't need to because people weren't able to do it. But the oral tradition said that this was wrong. It was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. It was wrong to need, with a K, on the Sabbath, and they, he was kneading the mud, okay? You see how picky they were? Like, you would knead dough. He was, you know, the fact that he probably rubbed it. It was also strictly illegal, according to their oral custom, to anoint eyes of any kind, okay? That's wrong, too. These are their oral traditions. These are not things in Scripture. These are things that they'd built over time, their own ideas about God. And, and Jesus just didn't fit their preconceived ideas. And what you're going to see here, what follows, is that they don't want the truth they don't really want to know who Jesus is. What they want is their preconceived ideas to be validated. Okay? So what do they do? They have this little trial. It's not a real trial, but it looks like a trial. So they call two witnesses. And it starts off great because they call the best two witnesses. The guy that was healed and his parents. Okay? So this is a slam dunk. We can figure this out. So they ask the man that was healed, were you blind? Yes. 
Were you healed? Yes. Who did it? Jesus. And they're like, we don't like that. You know, <laughs> get out of here. So then they bring in the parents who are very, very intimidated because there's this whole threat that you'll be kicked out of the community, basically, out of the synagogue if you were to stand up for Jesus. And so they're deeply intimidated, but they answer, say, is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How was he healed? We don't want to answer that. Then they leave. Guys, the verdict is obvious, right? They've totally identified that this guy was blind from birth. They, they can obviously see that he sees. There's his own testimony and the testimony of his parents. It's very clear that Jesus healed this blindness. They know that. But that's not the answer they want, right? And so they try to rig the trial, okay? This little trial they're doing. The first thing they do is intimidation. Very common way of trying to rig a trial. They threaten the parents with expulsion from the synagogue. They bully the blind man. If you look at verse 24, before he gives his testimony, they're like, give glory to God. What does that mean? He goes, God knows if you're lying or not. Tell the truth. We know you didn't tell the truth last time. You know? And then they, they say, we know this man's a sinner. And I love how he responds in verse 24. Just the openness. He goes, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. That's your deal. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. Such an awesome testimony of somebody just starting to understand who Christ is. And I just want to say to those of you who are in that place right now, you're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, but I really like what I'm hearing about Jesus and, and I'm wanting to learn more. It's, it, this is time for you to tell other people. Tell them what you know. You know, this guy was able to have tremendous um, fruit in his own community just by saying, I was blind, now I see. So you just tell what you know. You don't need to know everything. Um, he just gives what he knows so far. So they try and intimidate him. They also try repetition. Any of you guys who have ever been on witness stand know that this is standard tactics. But tell the story again and again. And I'm going to wait until you tell it a different way or there's some inconsistency, and then I'm going to zero in. That's what he's doing with him. He, they interview him twice, Right? I love how he responds to this, though, too, he, with courage and openness. And then he gets sarcastic, which I love. Verse 27, he says, I already told you, and you would not believe me. Why do you want to hear again? Do you want to become his disciples, too? <laughs> I love that. It's so good. And then in verse 28, they freak out. They're very upset by that. And they say, you're his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken through Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then he, the man, again, is sarcastic. He says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind, which is true. Throughout the Old Testament and even in Jewish literature, there were people that were healed of blindness, but never somebody was born blind. Because you got to admit that's a more hopeless case, right? If you were to come to an eye doctor, you say, hey, you know, I went blind last week. Do you think you can fix this? More likely, yes. You come to the eye doctor and say, I'm blind. Uh, can you heal this? Well, how long have you been blind? Forever. They'd be like, eh, probably not. Okay? So this is a very unlikely thing. And so they, they're, um, they're trying, they try to intimidate him. And he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So they tried intimidation, they tried tripping up his testimony, and the last thing they do is just discredit him. This is a great legal tactic, too. You tried to discredit the witness. And so in verse 34, they say, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Guys, these are the shepherds of God's people, okay? These Pharisees were people in the community that were called with taking care of God's sheep, and this is what they thought of them. You know, and what's he, they making reference to? His disability. 
The fact that he had a disability means he was born in utter sin, they say. And they, they're like, would you teach us? You see the arrogance? Can't learn from anybody else. Um, and so they kick him out of the synagogue. And so this man just gave this very basic testimony about Jesus, and he's been forsaken by his people for it. But I love what happens next. Check this out. Take a look at the next verse, verse 35. So this man gave this clear testimony about Jesus. He's paying this painful price of being rejected, like many of you have. I know that from your stories, many of you have from family and friends and workplace and all those things. But look at verse 35. When Jesus heard that he'd been cast out, he found him. Isn't that cool? When Jesus heard that he had, he had been cast out, he went and found him. Uh, Psalm 27.10, I love it. He says, even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Isn't that cool? That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He finds him. Let me ask you this. This man's life is not going well right now with this rejection and things like that. But was he better off in verse 1 or is he better off in verse 35? Think about his life. You know, he's lost his, all of his social connections probably. And was he better off in verse 1 where he had all that or is he better off now that he sees Jesus? You'd answer that for yourself. And so Jesus, this is, and I just wanted to say to you about that, is that seeing Jesus clearly will cost you, right? You guys remember uh, the Matrix and the two pills? Okay, if you guys have not seen the Matrix, this will be the time. Not this moment. That would be awkward. But there's the two pills. Like, do you want to see reality or not see reality? And the thing is, is that seeing Jesus clearly is going to cost you, but man, will it be worth it. Jesus draws near to you in a way that he's never drawn near to you when you're in these kinds of situations of rejection and being cast aside because of him. He will zero in on you. When he finds that you've been forsaken, he will find you out and he will come near to you. Look at verse 35. He's going to reveal himself in a whole new way to this guy who's taken out this step of, of faith. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now the word here, believe, means trust. He's saying, do you entrust your life to the Son of Man? And it's a question for all of us. And look at verse 36, he says, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Who is this son of man? This is mentioned several times in the Gospel of John, and I don't know if we've really talked about it before. I couldn't think that we had. These Pharisees, they say, We're disciples of Moses. We don't know who this guy is. Well, Jesus is saying that he is somebody way more significant than Moses. If you look at Daniel 7, 13, there's a vision that Daniel has of a person called the Son of Man. And this is hundreds of years before Jesus came. But it's a, it's a picture of who Jesus is in the Old Testament. And this is what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Do you see what Jesus is saying about himself? The Son of Man's dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man. He is the Messianic King. He is the person with all of God's authority because he is God in the flesh. And he is the one who's come to end all suffering. He suffered on the cross to end all suffering for us. He's saying that he is the one with the power to shove all of the suffering and and death, and all those things back into Pandora's box. That's what Jesus has come to do. And the cool thing is, is that he's come to recreate our bodies in the world to come, and recreate the world just the way he recreated these eyes. 
You know, this is a picture of what he's going to do to our whole bodies. This is a picture of what he's going to do to the whole world for all who trust in him. It isn't amazing that the first time that this guy sees Jesus with his physical eyes, he sees him for who he is. Because there's so many people that have looked at him, and even us, we've had many years of our lives that we have, quote, unquote, seen Jesus, known things about Jesus, but not seen who he really was. This guy, the first time he lays eyes on him, knows exactly who he is, that he's the Son of Man, he's God in the flesh. And he's, he's our rescuer. Look at verse 38, how he responds. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Notice, guys, that Jesus takes the worship. If you look at when people tried to worship the apostles or when people tried to worship angels in Scripture, they're always like, no, 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 right? They don't want to be struck by lightning, right? They're like, don't worship me. I'm not God. What does Jesus do? Stands there and takes it. Why? Because he is God in the flesh. As we wrap this up, there's two kinds of people. Take a look at verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Then this is interesting. There must have been a Pharisee kind of nearby in the neighborhood because they were local people. Some of the Pharisees nearby heard this and said to him, are we also blind? They're like, you call me blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is using this, this physical blindness as a picture of spiritual blindness. Guys, there's two kinds of people in the world that are born into this world. There's those who know they're blind, and there's those who think they see. This blind man's a great example of people that know they're blind. These Pharisees are a great example of people who think they see. Let's look at the blind man. Notice that he admits that he doesn't have it all figured out. Isn't that nice? He has lots of questions. He says things like, you know, they ask him, you know, well, he's a sinner. He's like, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I don't know anything, you know, on verse 26, 23. In verse 36, when Jesus says these things, he goes, well, who is the Son of Man? He's all questions, right? He's consistently open-minded about Jesus. And because he's consistently open-minded about Jesus and asking questions, which is the kind of community we want this to be, you ask your questions, you seek, and you don't have to just believe whatever we say. We're going to point you to what Jesus has said about himself and what others have said. Um, because he's consistently open-minded about Jesus, which is many of you here, his vision gets clearer and clearer through the narrative. Did you notice that? In verse 11, he calls him Jesus. In verse 17, he calls him the prophet. In verse 33, he says he's sent from God. Do you see how his vision's clearing up? And then in verse 38, he calls him Lord and worships him. The Pharisees, by contrast, believe that they have nothing to learn about or from Jesus. Look at verse 16. They say he's not from God. Verse 22, they had already agreed. Before they had their little trout, they had already agreed what they were going to do, right? Verse uh, 24, they say, we know. Verse 29, we know. They're all, we know this, we know that. We don't need to listen to anything, right? These Pharisees are consistently closed-minded about Jesus. They think they see already. Their idol, guys, and it's so obvious, it's dripping off of them, is intellectual pride. You know, they can't look foolish. They can't be wrong. They can't admit they didn't know something, right? They, they can't learn things from others, certainly from people that they think are simple-minded, like this, this blind man. And as a result, what happens to their spiritual eyes? They become more and more blind in the process. And this is an important key of how we approach Jesus because there's a certain kind of poverty of spirit. There's a certain kind of humility. There's a certain kind of um, acknowledgement of our own blindness that we have to have if we're going to receive Jesus. We have to come to him humbly with questions. I'm not saying check your brain at the door. I'm saying be open. Come with questions. Examine these things. That's what the scriptures would call us to do. I love Proverbs 26, 12, because it's told of these guys. 
Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's what these guys are like, you know? There's only one kind of person, guys, that can't become Jesus' disciple. Like, becoming Jesus' disciple is open to everybody, right? But there's one kind of person that can't become Jesus' disciple, and it's those who think they have nothing to learn from him. Right? Nothing to learn from him. And so if you're at a place this morning where you're like, I don't know if I'm going to believe all these things about him, but I think there's some things I could learn from him, start there. Start reading the gospel. Start seeing the things that he does, the things that he teaches, who he says he is. Investigate those things. Because there's only one kind of person that can't come, and it's those who don't think they need him. Guys, he, Jesus has come for the poor, right? He's come for the weak. He's come for the sick. He's come for the blind. He's come for the lost. He says he's come for children. That's the way to enter the kingdom. Because by his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has done something for us. We can't do it for ourselves. And so we come to him as people that can't do it for ourselves. We, we come to him and, and he says, he points out our sin and we, we drop that sin from our hands and then we put out these empty hands that are still dirty from sin. We put out these empty hands to receive salvation as a gift for free. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you entrust yourself to the Son of Man? Let's worship him. Let's pray. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.